0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fig Tree Watchers. Uh, This night, we are going to talk about the millennium. So two weeks ago, we covered part one. Uh, We looked at the timeline in terms of when the millennium will come to the earth. We looked at um, the fact that we are still called the uh, heirs to the millennium or to the kingdom of God. Now we're gonna just look at part two today. And what we're gonna be focusing on is not necessarily what is the millennium, but why we can believe. Uh, that the millennium is a literal thing, unlike the other views we looked at. So once more people come in here, we'll get into review of part one, what we talked about two weeks ago concerning the millennium, why we can believe in the millennium. Uh, We're gonna relate that back into uh, replacement theology, talk about what that is a little bit, and why replacement theology fuels this view that the millennium is not literal. And we'll look into more reasons scripturally why we can believe the millennium is a real thing, or that it's a, literal um, Thing that will occur in the future uh, So right now it is just me uh, brother Stefan is currently at work So he might he thinks he might not make it tonight. So we'll see if he joins us later. But for now, it's just me um, And we'll see uh, what happens later tonight But as usual guys, you guys can join us on um, Fiction Watchers on Instagram. Obviously if you're following us in here, that's great. You can follow us on Facebook We're on telegram as well Um, We're thinking later, maybe in the coming weeks and coming months, might get on Twitter. And obviously, as uh, Brother Stefan has been sharing and I've been sharing on my social media accounts as well, we've also created podcasts. I'm sure some of you guys actually might be listening to this show after the fact on podcasts. So you can find us on Spotify, um, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, what else, Stitcher, and all these different things. So wherever you listen to podcasts, we'll be on there. So we'll be uploading this episode afterwards. On a podcast as well so you guys can find us on all those things obviously you can hit us up on our website we have FictureWatchers.com. you can go on there as well so thanks for joining everyone and we will get started soon so i'll just start with prayer and again i'll just review what we covered two weeks ago and then we'll get started with tonight's lesson so father we thank you again that we were able to gather Uh, Together, Lord, using technology, we thank you that we are able to just look into your word and um, just learn together like we're doing now. We pray that you use this time to encourage us with your word. We pray that you use this time to further understand about prophecy, specifically the millennium, uh, why we can say that it will be literally fulfilled in the future, why we can trust in your promises, Lord. Because if we can't trust in your promises concerning the millennium, concerning the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can we trust in your promises concerning our salvation, Lord? So we just pray uh, that you guide us through this study and just show us uh, why you are trustworthy, why you're true, why replacement theology isn't isn't true at all, why it's false and uh, just a better, under, better understanding of these things, Lord. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So thanks for joining, guys. Again, Brother Stefan right now, he's a little bit stuck in work, so it's just me right now. Maybe you might join later tonight, maybe not but again our focus tonight will just be continuing our discussion on the millennium two weeks ago if you guys remember it was just me again two weeks ago so it's actually kind of funny that i touched on the millennium and i'm the only one uh discussing the topic so that's kind of ironic in a sense so yeah two weeks ago i'm just going to start reviewing um the millennium so two weeks ago i began talking about the millennium not in terms of what it is we can me and brother stefan can talk about that in our Friday Night Bob Prophecy updates in terms of what the millennium is. Revelation gets into that. The Old Testament prophets get into that. It's a time of peace, a time when the animal kingdom and humans will be at peace with one another, no war. So that's what the millennium is. But this focus, these studies we're doing is more so on why we can believe the millennium is literal. So we talked about that uh, in reference to replacement theology, right? People who are amillennial in their views, and we'll get into that as well. Uh, believe that the church has replaced Israel. So that's why we're talking about this. We're discussing this in light of this view and saying why those views are false and why replacement theology is false, right? So we know that from Revelation 20, there's six references to the millennium. We talked about that last week. Uh, You guys can find this Revelation 20 verses two to seven. So six references. It talks about how the devil will be sealed up uh, in the abyss for one thousand years, how will rule and reign in Christ one thousand years? So lists one thousand years, literally six different times. But yet again, as I stated two weeks ago, people are still like, mm, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that's a thousand years. I don't think that's literal. Uh, maybe God doesn't really mean what he says he means. Um, so we, we just looked at that, and we looked at these three different views. So the first one is amillennialism. So amillennialism, they believe again that the millennium isn't a literal one thousand year period that It started at Christ's um, ascension into heaven and that it's currently going on right now in an unspecified time frame. Amillennialists believe that Christ is currently reigning in our hearts, um, <laughs> so that's the amillennial view. I'm not, not making that up, that's what they believe. Uh, and then there's the other view, post millennialism. They also believe that the millennium is not a literal 1,000 year period of time, they believe that Christ is currently ruling. Uh, but that things will kind of get better and better that the world would get more and more Christianized uh, I don't know how they see that because as we look at the world. It's getting crazier and crazier So I don't know how the post-millennialists are currently viewing current events, but that's what they believe And they believe that after this period of time once the whole world is Christianized Then Jesus will return and we essentially hand the millennium back to him And then we go into the eternal state and then what we believe what a lot of us believe it's called premillennialism. So that's just the view that the millennial reign is a literal one thousand year period of time. And what's interesting, what I noted in part one was that when you hear these people speak, like there's a video I watched concerning uh, these different views. And Jeff Durbin, if you guys know him, he's a popular postmillennialist, and he's also popular for a lot of his biblical things that he does. Um, but he talked about these different views, and he he went to post uh, premillennialism, and he said that one thing you got to give to premillennialists. Is that they they believe what god says they take it literally and then my reaction to that if you guys remember was that should we should we do that isn't that what we're supposed to be doing um when the when the scripture is clear about god's promises to his people or god's promises in general we're in scripture if it's using plain language and if we can deduce based on the context it's literal then we should take it literally we shouldn't allegorize it so that's one thing you might hear from these other people who adhere to this view that, hey, you know, you gotta give it to the premillennials millennials though, even though we don't agree with them, they at least take the Bible literally. And that will kind of make you scratch your head that, huh, shouldn't we be doing that when it's when the context calls for it? So those are the three main views, on-millennialism, post-millennialism, pre And you guys can just mainly remember that it just centers on the millennium, either after, before, or, or just a general uh, period of time. So still reviewing here. If you guys remember, I touched on the fact that there's a timeline here. Like scripture uh, doesn't blatantly give it to us. But if you look at different verses, different passages, we can piece together this timeline that scripture gives us. That first Jesus returns, the king returns to the earth. He judges the wicked. And then the millennial reign of Christ is brought to the earth, right? That's the timeline. First the king, then the 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 judgment of the wicked and then the kingdom so looked at daniel 2 daniel 7 we looked at nebuchadnezzar's statue right with the different kingdoms we looked at the different beasts and we saw that at the end with daniel's statue uh the um uh rock cut out of the mountain without hands destroyed the other kingdoms and then that rock turned into a big big mountain that filled the earth right And that kingdom was God's kingdom that was never destroyed. It lasted for It's going to last forever. Um, And then in Daniel 7, we saw that basically basically the same thing, but in terms of beasts, not the statue. And we saw that that fourth beast, that last day's kingdom, will be destroyed by the Messiah, uh, the the coming cloud rider, as we like to call it, uh, the one coming at the clouds, as Daniel 7 puts it, which is Jesus. He destroys that last day's kingdom. And then... The kingdom is manifest on the earth. That's the timeline we see, which isn't what premillennialism, or sorry, postmillennialism, all millennialism state. And the last thing I covered last week was that in James two five, uh, we said or it says that we are heirs of the kingdom. So James two five says, "Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised those who love us?" So we. To who love him. So we looked at Matthew 25, uh, we looked at James 2 5 and Daniel 7 to see that hey, wait a minute, not only does the Bible uh, show us this timeline that hey, the king comes, then he judges the wicked, then the wicked, then the kingdom is manifested on the earth, we also see the Bible make it clear that we are heirs of the kingdom. And you know, we looked at the analogy of kings in in, um, um, a royal family, right? We said that if a king has some sons, the oldest son takes his throne if the king passed away. That oldest son is an heir to the throne. That means that at that point in time, while the king is still alive, his heir has not received the throne yet. That's why he's an heir. So when the king dies, then that heir ascends the throne. He's no longer an heir at that point, he's a king. So that's just, we all understand that. That's what an heir means. So likewise, if we translate that same concept into the Bible and we see how the Bible calls us heirs of the kingdom, why then do we believe that we are in the kingdom now? Um, and that's what a lot of people believe—that we are currently in the kingdom. Uh, we're either in the kingdom, Christ is reigning our hearts, or the world is getting Christianized. You know these different views that don't make sense. So we have to and again. This is important because when you start, when if you believe that the kingdom is here now, you essentially are saying that the promises that God had for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which are literal, which we'll look at. Um, are realized in the church. They don't apply to Israel anymore. So that's where the replacement theology aspect comes in. That's kind of what I'm trying to weave together with you guys here tonight. So uh, thanks for joining, guys. Again, for those who just joined, uh, Brother Stefan is just currently stuck at work right now, so I'm just taking over. Um, and hopefully we'll see if he joins um, the show later. If not, you know, I'll be doing the whole thing just like uh, two weeks ago. So yeah, that's just the review there, guys. Now I just wanna go into the land promises. So again, we looked at the timeline, we looked at the fact that we're currently heirs of the kingdom, and to add to this argument that the millennial reign of Christ is literal, and therefore replacement theology is false, is that God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob land, specific land, and it's a literal promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So it still awaits a literal fulfillment. So throughout the Bible, we see many promises and many prophecies relating to Israel that await a yet future fulfillment. So one of these is land. So we first see this in Genesis 12, 7. Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So that's the first instance we see God um, you know, talk to Abraham and say, "I will give this land to you," and it's literal. But unfortunately, again, the amillennialists and the postmillennialists—they see them. They say, "Oh wait, hold up," you know, that's actually currently being filled in the church. And I'm gonna again explain why that's not the case through several reasons. So first, thing I want you guys to notice here is that later in Genesis 13, again. In Genesis 12, God promised the land to Abraham and he said, I'll give you this land and to your descendants. In Genesis 13, God tells Abraham to walk in that land. So in Genesis 13, verse 14 to 17, it says, lift your eyes now and look from place where you are, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length, its width, for I give it to you. So what's important to know here is that the land is not the only thing God promises Abraham. He promises a multitude of descendants, right? He also promised a blessing, which are literal promises. So we saw, we've already seen through history how the Israelites have expanded and grown numerously into multiple descendants, right? So that's a promise fulfilled and it's still being fulfilled even in this times, so these are literal promises that filled the blessing and the multiple descendants as vast as the stars or as numerous as the a sand on the seashore, right? So if those are fulfilled literally and those promises were wrapped up with the land promises, wouldn't we logically expect that the land promises will be fulfilled too? And I want you guys to understand this because essentially what the people with the other view are doing, again, those other views are postmillennialism. And amillennialism, what they're saying, essentially, when they gets this verse is that they they go through it, they read it, they're like, okay, you know, God says, I'll give you descendants Okay, check. Yeah, that was literally fulfilled. I'll make you a great name. Okay, check. You know, everybody, you know, uh, the Muslims claim Abraham too, right? Everybody knows Abraham. So God fulfilled that as well, wherever you go. Even if people don't know the Bible, you say Abraham, they know you're talking about something biblical. So that was literally fulfilled. Uh, he will bless Abraham, you know, blessing. So we see that through uh, scripture. And then they get to land promises and like, oh, wait, 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 <laughs> those aren't literally fulfilled. So everything else is literally fulfilled up till the land promises. So you guys see that switch in uh, scriptural interpretation there. You can't do something like that. It's literally all of them have been literally fulfilled or all of them have not been literally fulfilled. You can't say yes to some and no to the other ones. And again, Genesis 13, 14, 17, God, made Abraham walk through the land. So he made Abraham walk through literal land with literal boundaries, right? So again, that shows us that this isn't just some weird spiritual allegorized thing. God was like, walk through its length and its width. This is the literal land I'm going to give you, the literal real estate I'm going to give you and your descendants. So that should clue us into the fact that, okay, this is a literal promise that God is going to give this piece of land to his descendants. Or said, I hear many Christians who don't believe in the literal promise of land argue land has been has caused too much bloodshed. Yeah, and again, that's why I believe that this is so important to go through because a lot of people that believe that, that make the argument, believe and subscribe in replacement theology. They'll say that that's not literal. God is done with his people, um, so therefore, you know, they'll even go as far as say the Jews in the land of Israel right now aren't real Jews. And this is wrapped up with a lot of conspiracy theories and things like that, that when we look at the Bible, we've obviously seen prophecies fulfilled concerning God bringing the Jewish people back. So I don't know where they're getting all those things from. Ultimately, you know, this is spiritual warfare. Uh, we know that, you know, because God loves the people of Israel, because God loves the Jews, Satan hates them. So he will use anything, any means necessary to destroy them, to malign them, to make sure the promises regarding them aren't fulfilled. So that's just something we need to keep in uh, mind too. And unfortunately, this is growing within the church. So again, this is why I believe this is such an important discussion to have. It's not just like, well, you have your view and I have my view. At the end of the day, it's obviously not a salvation issue. But again, what you believe on the millennium changes literally your whole outlook of the Bible, your outlook on who God is, his character, right? Because if you can say that God Maybe, you know, he lied or, oh no, he didn't really fulfill his promises. Like, what are you saying about the character of God? So it, it's really important what we believe about this. It's really important what we believe about the Jewish people. So another important thing concerning these land promises is that they haven't been fulfilled yet. And I want to note to you guys the specifics. Again, you have to note the specifics of what God is promising to Abraham and his descendants. So we later see that what God promises Abraham in terms of blessing descendants land well that's what we call the Abrahamic covenant so God reinforces this covenant in Genesis 15 7 to 20 and I'm not going to read all that but I encourage you guys to go through Genesis 12 13 15 just look at those specifics for yourself and study that out but I want to currently read to you guys is Genesis 15 18 to 21 and I want you guys to pay attention to the boundaries of land that God promises to Abraham and his descendants. So Genesis 15, 18 it says, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, again, that's the Abrahamic covenant, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. This is the boundaries. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Ken, Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So he says from the river of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates, he will give that land to Abraham and his descendants. Now that's a big <laughs> swat of land. Right now as we look to the Middle East, as we look at Israel, we have to ask ourselves, huh, does Israel, the land they have, does it currently reach from the river Euphrates or the river of Egypt to the great River Euphrates, in, uh, that's in Iraq. So is there boundaries currently from Egypt to Iraq, essentially? The answer is no. And actually, I analyze this more. So um, I show here, uh, I said, God provides physical markers to the boundaries of this land being from the river of great e- Egypt to great river Euphrates. In our modern time, the full allotment of Israel's land would be composed of the land they have now, including the Gaza Strip. Judea and Samaria, which they call West Bank, some of modern-day Egypt, possibly all of Lebanon and Jordan, some of Saudi Arabia, some of Syria, as well as some of modern-day Iraq. So to this day, Israel is yet to receive that full land allotment. So we have to understand that, right? We, we have to understand, okay, God is promising this land to Abraham and his descendants. It's literal, he walked through it, it's a literal promise he made literal land. Has it been realized yet in the past? No, it hasn't. And I see here that Brother Stefan has actually joined. So feel free to join Brother if you want. Or if you want to sit back and keep watching, go ahead. <laughs> I know he's probably just uh, came back from work. So, but I'll continue on. Uh, so uh, one resource I want to recommend you guys, because I'm going through this, going through um the the kingdom the millennial kingdom uh resource i want to really recommend to you guys this book called the coming kingdom and it's by dr andy woods so some of you guys might know him he has this great book and he on his youtube channel you can also check out a series that he goes through that book it's probably like 60 70 videos for free or you can check out the book yourself and he details these kind of like these kind of arguments i'm giving you concerning the literal fulfillment of these promises Uh, He talks about these things in his book. He talks about these things in his video sermon. So I would highly recommend that to you guys if you're interested to learn more about this subject. So in this book, he says, in addition to being literal and unconditional, the covenant, even up to present hour, remains unfulfilled. So that's that important thing. So when the amillennialist or the postmillennial says, oh, the church has replaced Israel or the promises that God made to Israel has now been realized to church you have to ask them but wait a minute God you know he made specific promises for specific boundaries to Abraham and his descendants. Have those been realized in the past? Well no they haven't. So the quote from his book says, oh, while some might make the argument that some parts of the covenant have been achieved at past fulfillment when construed literally the bulk of the covenant remains unfulfilled thus awaiting a future. Realization, uh, So we know that if God makes a promise, he's going to make that promise come to pass, right? God is not a liar. He will fulfill what he um, said he's going to do. So next, that the full realization of this land promise has never been materialized. Again, that's what we're talking about here. In his book, he says, although Solomon gained a large percentage of land, his empire, listen to this, his empire, Solomon's empire, only extended to the border of Egypt. When the specific details are examined, an Israeli border stretching to Egypt's river rather than the border is what God initially promised Abraham. So some people might say, well, this was fulfilled during Solomon's reign or David's reign, but that's not the case because God said, specifically in Genesis 15, that the land he'll give them is from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And they have never, ever occupied that land um, in history at all. So the next thing here, so we've looked at the land promises initially. So the next thing I wanna look at here is the millennial temple and that's around Ezekiel 40 to Ezekiel 48. And I would highly recommend you guys to look at that because essentially uh, those chapters detail the fourth temple that's gonna be standing during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, it details the sacrifices that'll be made and all of that. So um, I wanna get into that as well. Hey brother, um, I can invite you on now. Let's see if Brother Stefan's going to join. Hey, Brother. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? Doing well.
1: Glad you could make it. Yeah, by the skin of my (laughs) teeth. Uh, Man, I got to tell you, uh, what a great story. I've been listening in my car and uh, what you were talking about. I I wanted to say one thing about the land also, right? Yeah. So what makes the church different is that the church is designed that we are the body of Christ and that the Holy spirit resides in us. We're not about land. We're not about buildings. We are a, a, about that we are the body of Christ where Israel was related to a nation that was set apart. We're now a different people set apart, but not by land or by, or by a building, but by, that Christ indwells within us. And so the promises to the land is why? Because in the end, the clearest prophecy is in Romans 11, which says Mm. all of Israel will be saved. It's not saying all the church, it's saying all Israel will be saved. Mm. And that God is gonna fulfill the promises of the land to Israel to demonstrate that he never forgot them, that he Mm. hasn't abandoned them. And in the most dangerous part of replacement theology is that God breaks promises. And what he really says in Romans 11, Paul does is, God does not revoke his call, his Mm -hmm. call to Israel to repent, his call to the body of Christ to repent. And he also does not break, um, revoke the gifts.
0: Exactly, exactly. And that's a great point you brought up too, because I totally forgot about that. But people mention this a lot, that, we have to understand that Israel and church are different, right? Israel was an actual nation. They actually had an army and all this. They're an actual nation of people, whereas the church is not a nation. We don't have an army. We don't have land or anything like that. So it's also strange to be saying that, oh, those land promises were filled in the church, but we don't, we don't have anything to do with land. We're not a nation. So that's another a great point there that's worth bringing up in terms of the amillennialist and postmillennial uh, views there. So again, yeah, let's move on to uh, the Millennial Temple. So again, I was saying earlier, guys, that Millennial Temple, you guys can read that from Ezekiel 40 through 48. But I think this is another great argument as to why this has to be filled literally in terms of the land promises. Because the Millennial Temple in the future will be in the land of Israel. So if you're saying that the, the land promises aren't literal, uh, we as a church replace God's people, you essentially have to take out Ezekiel 40, 48, just take it out of the Bible. Because it details very specific promises concerning the millennial temple. It details like the the um, how priests during that time are gonna sacrifice animals. It details different building structures, different walls, what wall will be set up where. It's very, very specific. So it's just weird that you would make this argument that oh well, you know, God was messing around. He wasn't actually serious about those specifics. They're just spiritually fulfilled in the church somehow, which is very weird. Uh, so right here, I, I wrote, we see this promise filled in Ezekiel 47, 48, in terms of the divisions of land God will give to the tribes. And he actually details that in 47, 48, uh, each division that the each tribe gets. So again, that's another literal thing. And God actually says why he's doing that later. And I'll get into that as well. So those chapters center on the millennial reign Christ and offer specific details of, of, get this, the temple's layout, the location of the temple on a very high mountain, The measurements of various areas of the temple, the location where animals are slaughtered and sacrificed, chambers for singers and priests, the manner of worship for those who enter the temple, who and who can't enter the temple, the description of a river flowing from the temple into the Dead Sea, which Brother Stephan and I talk about. So all those things and much more are talked about concerning the temple that will be standing during the millennium in Israel in the land that he gave them. So if those aren't literal promises, you're essentially uh, erasing all of that away, which is, which is crazy.
1: And, and this is why they do it. And I, I want to bring this up because this is real important. Um, they, they want to allegorize scripture because if they can allegorize it, they can put doubt in your mind. And what does the Bible constantly say? It tells you the truth of God's word. Believe the truth what yeah. we have written to you what we have told you um especially it is so important that we believe god's word and here's the 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 act, academic problem with what they're telling you right they're saying okay the first coming of jesus was literal right mm-hmm. he was found in literal bethlehem uh he literally was killed on a on a on a cross Uh, He was literally betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. There's 300 prophecies about Jesus' first coming, all literally fulfilled, okay? Now they're telling you, wait a moment, those same writers, those same authors, they changed their whole writing style around, and they became allegoric and figurative in their language regarding the second coming. Exactly. Which, by the way, there's for every verse on the first coming, there's eight verses Mm. About the second coming, which means total verses in the Bible regarding the first coming, there's 2,400 verses. Okay? And multiply that times eight. That's how many verses you have regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. So God is telling you, listen, I've multiplied it times eight because I want you to pay attention to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's to be taken literally, not figuratively or allegorically. And by doing that, they're diluting the gospel. They're diluting the word of God and they're putting doubt in your mind about it. Replacement theology is absolutely satanic. And it really comes out of cults. It comes out of way back when Islam. It comes out of Jehovah's Witnesses cult. Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes out of parts of Mormonism. Um, There's aspects to it. But in the end of the day, it's still evil to believe that God replaces someone because he's done with them. Otherwise, he would have done that with Saul. He would have told Saul, you're not saved. He would have told David, you're not saved. You would have ended salvation. He would have made it insecure. Uh, God may punish you, but he never gives up on you. He's always out there chasing the 99, the, the one sheep that gets away leaving the 99 for the one yeah. that's Jesus. That's God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just to end your point there too, it's
0: just, if he, you know, if he could walk back his promises and tell Saul, Oh, you're no longer saved. Tell David, you're no longer saved. He can do that to us. <laughs> and that's the question we right. realize if he can do that to Israel, what makes you guys think he won't, he can't just, you know, toss us away. And just to kind of add on to your earlier points, in terms of what you're saying concerning the first coming prophecies being literally fulfilled, and they kind of switch it up for the second coming prophecies that's so important because let's just look at one of that for just an example and i wasn't going to go here earlier but i think this is such a good thing to really flesh out here uh, isaiah 9 6-7 to 7. I'm just going to read it quick and just you know talk about it from what brother Stefan was saying it says for unto us a child is born that's the first coming right unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder so in that first coming prophecy there's a allusion to the second coming, right? The government will be upon his shoulder. That's not happening yet right now. And it switches back to first coming. And his name will be called one of the father, uh, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then in verse seven, Isaiah goes back, alluding to the second coming. He says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon throne David and over his kingdom to order and establish you with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of the lord of hosts will perform this so again uh when we take a look at what you're saying brother if we're going to say that the first coming prophecies are literal the second coming isn't literal we would have to do some major damage to this we're having to say that okay parts of this is literal then switch our hermeneutics halfway and say okay the government piece oh that's being filled in our hearts now it's not literally literal but then you also have to write away the last piece of that verse of seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's for yes. both verses. That's for the first coming and the second coming. Essentially saying God will perform those promises. He's going to perform what he said in verse six and verse seven. So you can't just say, oh, he'll just perform verse six, but he won't do seven and, and this and that. So really, you know, it's really messy interpretation there. And it just doesn't make sense, biblically speaking.
1: And that's why we talk about congruent theology so exactly. much that the best way to study God's word is to have witnesses. So we understand, for example, we take the scrolls, the seals, the in in, in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. We when we look at the seals and we go, well, where else are they in the Bible? We, uh, we find them in the Zechariah passage in there. I think I just got cut off and on what happened mm-hmm. there, but we see them there. Um, and we see them in other places as well. Um, we see them in Ezekiel we'll talk about it in Ezekiel chapter two. The scrolls are there um, from the Seven Seals. So we can see this incongruent, but we also see congruently in numerous places in the Bible God referring to his millennial reign um, and of of Christ. We see it throughout the scripture in multiple places. And so we can congruently through the eyewitnesses of scripture say, Jesus is coming back. He will rule for a thousand years. And yeah, we yeah. can find that through the scripture. We, we don't just need the eyewitnesses afterwards, like Papias who was a disciple of John who said, hey, John told me that he, after the tribulation, he's gonna rule for a thousand years, Jesus will. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's great eyewitness, but we can see that through the scripture without Papias, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Uh, just to go back to uh, the what we're talking about now, which is the millennial temple, the millennial kingdom. Um, another great, you know, again, I've talked about the details, measurements and the worship that happens at the, at the uh, temple. But another thing that we see here that we can definitely say, yeah, this is going to be literal. The millennial temple is going to be literal. The land promises are literal, is that God himself says he will be in the temple ruling over his people during that time so he says this in ezekiel 48 or 43 rather 6 to 7 he says then i heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me and he said to me son of man this is the place of my throne again the temple and the place of the souls of my feet where i will dwell in the midst of the children of israel forever so that's another one of those things where you have to go okay if this is if this isn't really real if this isn't true was god lying that he said he would dwell in the midst of people forever uh is that Mm. being spiritualized how is that being spiritualized even though we just saw the details a literal temple so those are some of the things uh we have to look out there or look out for there so it's due to this level of specificity given that we can be sure this temple must exist in jerusalem israel in the future and likewise that this land promises are fulfilled um in the Jewish people in the future.
1: Amen.
0: Amen. Yeah. Well, so another thing here, again, when we're going through this, um Ezekiel 48 lays out what I love about Ezekiel 48 is that it lays out the specific um divisions of the land per tribe. And so Ezekiel 48 nine to ten it says the district that you shall set apart from the Lord shall be twenty-five thousand cubits in length and ten thousand in width. To these, the priest's holy district shall belong. On the north, 25,000 cubits. So he keeps them out cubits. On the west, 10,000 width. On the east, 10,000 width. On the south, 25,000 length. The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the center. So we see during that division, it's very specific in terms of even the uh, amount of land given. That it's, oh, it's like 20,000 cubits of this length. And in the west, it's this. It's the east, it's this. And we see that the Lord the Lord himself gets specific land allotment in the yep. midst of the Jewish people. So yep. that's very important. Not only will the Lord be dwelling amongst people during that time in the temple, he will also designate a piece of land for himself literally during that time period as well. So you can't just write that off and say, Oh no, he was joking. He didn't actually mean it. That doesn't mean what it says. Well, if, if the first if the first advent of the Lord meant what it said, if Scripture meant what it said that the Lord will be, you know, He will come from a virgin. He will be God, fully God, fully man. He will die for, on the cross for our sins. If that meant what it said, then you can trust what Scripture says concerning the second coming and all these promises.
1: Uh, absolutely, uh, and that is that's one of the great things that that we can see in Scripture is that God is a our God that we serve. The Holy God yeah. is one who does not lie. And he does not break his promises. And that is so critical to the faith of Christianity, mm-hmm. because Islam actually refers to God as a prankster, right? Yeah, the best thing as, to as when he was full of lies. mischief. Mm-hmm. Our, the God of Christianity, he is holy, and he does not break his promises. He cannot lie. He fulfills everything that he says he's going to fulfill. And this is the one reason why I I look at all the religions and I go, you know what, Christianity is different because we serve a God who is absolutely truthful, absolutely Mm -hmm. powerful, all knowing, who will not surrender to a lie or, or to mischief or to prankster that he keeps his word. He is sovereign. And this is where we get the idea of sovereignty of God. God is faithful in his promises. And I think my favorite name for Jesus is actually found in the book of Revelation where it says his name is faithful and true. Mm, yeah. That, that's our Savior. That's his true name, faithful yeah. and true. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And another thing, you know, and while you're talking about that, it just brings me to remember that uh, like Allah in Islam, which is not the God of the Bible, by the way, and I believe we all know that. Uh, Allah, again, in the Quran is referenced as the chief of deceivers, the chief of liars, right? And the thing is that in the Quran, you know, maybe, you know, in the earlier parts of Quran, Allah will say one thing to the Muslims, but then it can totally be rewritten and overwritten in later parts of Quran. So things might change. Allah could just change how he is on a dime. Whereas in the Bible, Yahweh, our God, the trying God is the same Yesterday, today, and forever, he doesn't change. He's always been right. truthful. He's he's never gonna flip on us like that. So uh, we know in this world things change and no one's reliable, but God is always the same. So you can't just say, "Well, God meant this in the Old Testament, and He totally just you know flipped things on its head in the New Testament." Well, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense because God doesn't change like we humans
1: do. So we can rely on Him. You know, I I think that that's interesting because this is one of the arguments that is made about Allah is you said he's chief among deceivers well jesus said about satan he is the father of all lies yeah um so that is a total contradiction to who god is and this is why we as christians argue no we don't serve the same god um and this is why you know there are so many false teachers within the church because they're trying to bring this unity among the religions when there isn't a unity among the religions there's only one god oh israel and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You can't love God if you're constantly believing he's a deceiver. It's impossible. A- ask anyone who's been married. If you are constantly worried about your spouse cheating on you, you really yeah. don't have any love there for him. Because yeah. you don't trust him. And that's the important thing that, that comes out of Christianity is you need to believe God and that's why Abraham trusted God and why he was counted faithful because he believed God not Mm. believed in believed God he believed him
0: yeah yeah that's great and uh when we go to Ezekiel 47 as we're looking at the millennium the millennial temple again God himself you know gives these descriptions of the temple and everything to uh, Ezekiel during this time. And God himself tells Ezekiel, Hey, I will dwell in this land in the midst of my people. God himself lays out the boundaries of the land that he will set aside for himself during this time. And God himself tells us in scripture in Ezekiel 47 why this land division is occurring. Because again, we started this looking at Genesis 12. We started this looking at Genesis 15 that God promised Abraham, I will give this land to you. And Ezekiel 47. That's what God is referring back to, right? It shows us that he's trustworthy. He's just saying that, hey, I'm just fulfilling what I told Abraham before. So he's keeping to his word. So Ezekiel 47, 13 to 14 says, thus says the Lord God, these are the boundaries by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally one another, for I Listen to this, for I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. He says, I raised my hand as an oath. So, I mean, I don't know (laughs) how strongly this has to be worded for people. We see in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first, you know, within the first 20 chapters, God makes his promises promises to Abraham, his descendants. Then later in Ezekiel, way into the Old Testament, He just refers back to, he's like, hey, I made that promise. I stood up in the oath, and I'm going to make that promise come true in the future. And again, we saw that that hasn't been fulfilled yet. They do not yet have their land from the river of Egypt
1: to uh, the Euphrates River. So that must be literal. Can you provide everyone with that verse? Because that's a great verse when dealing with replacement theology. What is that verse? One more time.
0: Yeah, the verse is Ezekiel 47, verses 13 to 14. So again, that's just a, such a powerful verse because God says that he raised his hand in an oath to his fathers. And he and this land shall fall to you, shall fall to you as your inheritance. Um, so that's just really powerful there. Again, Ezekiel 47, 13 to 14. And again, I referenced earlier the coming kingdom by Dr. Andy Woods. He had a quote here, a great quote here by uh concerning this, and I just want to read it off quick. He said. One of the more significant promises divinely bequeathed to Abraham was the promise of land. At least two reasons make it apparent that this land was literal real estate on the earth. First, the land that God took Abraham to is juxtaposed with the land that God took Abraham from, which is the earth of Chaldeans. And that's such a great point, right? Because earlier I noted that God told Abraham to walk through the land, the literal land, um, and we see that that land is literal because he gave him the, okay, walk by its width, walk by its breath. But what Dr. Inwood is making here is that, hey, before this, God took Abraham out of Ur of Chaldeans. So if the, you know, all millennials or post will say that, oh, that land isn't literal. It's just, you know, it's spiritualized. Well, you got spiritualized Ur of the Chaldeans as well. Because all those locations in those chapters are literal. God talks about his literal places, Abraham goes from a place, goes to another place. So if you allegorize one place, you also have to allegorize the Ur of the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia, which is Babylon, and you can't do that. Uh, He continues by saying, while no one doubts that the Ur of the Chaldeans represented a place of actual physical geography, neither should it be doubted that the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants should also be construed in ordinary and literal terms. Second, God instructed Abraham to walk throughout the land. Such an injunction borders on impossible if actual real estate is not in view here. So he continues. But again, those are just the points I'm making that we can say that this is literal because he mm. makes him walk through the land and he takes him out from another land. And just to wrap up here, another reason we can believe in this promise that Jesus himself references the millennial kingdom many times. And one of those references, he actually tells the 12 disciples that in the millennium, they'll be reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel. So he says this in Matthew 19 verse 28 says, so Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, that's the resurrection. Then the son of man, when the son of man sits on his throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, my question to you guys for any amillennialists or postmillennialists there, if this isn't literal, was Jesus a liar? Did Jesus lie to 12 disciples? Because he's making a literal promise here. You guys will judge over the 12 tribes of Israel, and you can't judge over tribes that there's no land to judge over. So, that has to be a literal promise that he's talking about there. You can't spiritualize that way.
1: Any thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's beautiful and how it ties back to the Ezekiel um, 47 passage because what it actually says there, which I think is interesting um, and, and is, I, he says, I raised my uh, hand as an oath to give it to your fathers and this land. But then earlier he says, as an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Yep. So the disciples are going to rule among the 12 tribes of Israel, which later on we see in the book of revelation, we have those 24 elders, those 24 stones that represent the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. Um, really, really interesting um, that it's all coming into fruition uh, later on in the book of revelation in the millennial reign of Christ. Exactly. And this is why we cannot dismiss this millennial reign. And, uh, by the way, I want to say one more thing about this. The early church fathers, first 300 years, it wasn't nobody, nobody argued the millennial reign of Christ. It wasn't until Augustine showed up and began to say, it's an allegorical tale, mm-hmm. Asubius, um, Origen, these guys who begin to allegorize scripture. And that's when everything began to become corrupted in the church. Mm-hmm. Not the scripture, not the transmission, not the 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 the, the actual... Um, documents that we have regarding scripture what began to become corrupted was what they were teaching about the scripture
0: yeah exactly exactly so just to summarize all of this guys and then you know these are the questions I wrote down that I have for those who um, who espouse this view of post-millennials these are the questions we have to ask them these are the things we have to think that how is it that we are in the millennium now But yet Israel has not been given their full land as promised in the scripture. We saw those physical things, the boundaries, that hasn't been fulfilled yet, that God said that there'll be 12 tribes given their land. We saw even the the scriptures go as far as to say, hey, the land here on the west side is this many cubits. On the east side, it's this many cubits. That's very specific. If we're in the millennium now in any sense, why doesn't Israel have their full amount of land? Are we supposed to take this? Non literal as, as those other views espouse. And even more so, Jesus confirms again the future reality to his disciples by saying, Hey, during that time, after they've gotten their land, you guys will be ruling over them. You can't rule over a people group if, they, if they're not in a land, right? They're, they can't be a people They can't be a nation at that point if they don't have land yeah. to call home. So, those are just some of the things we looked at. And again, guys, in part one, we also saw that scripture details to us the timeline. That first, the king returns back to the earth. That's Jesus. He judges the wicked. That's going to be the Antichrist's armies, the devil. And then the the kingdom is materialized on the earth. We saw that in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, obviously Revelation, Matthew. You see that all over scripture. That's the timeline laid out for us. It's the king first, judgment, and then the kingdom. We also saw that we're called the heirs of the kingdom. We just use the normal analogy, right, of the king, his sons. And the first son is going to be heir to the throne. Well, If he's an heir to the throne, he's not a king. He doesn't have the kingdom. It's only after the king king passes away that he inherits it. Likewise, if we're heirs to the kingdom now, the kingdom doesn't exist yet. We're still waiting for it. Daniel says the same thing. Matthew says the same thing. Jesus himself says, hey, welcome to the kingdom. Like You will inherit the kingdom at that point in time. And obviously now we're looking at the land promises. So I believe that those are really great reasons, we can see that the millennium is a literal piece of, you know, literal time span of 1,000 years that's not just allegorized, it's not just, you know, something that we are filling right now in the church that doesn't belong to Israel anymore. It's still something that's going to be filled later in the future. And if we can see that, then we can know that replacement theology is false. It's not true because God is not abandoned his people. If he's abandoned his people, <laughs> he can abandon us too, right? We don't have any hope at that point in time. So the last thing I want to say here is, uh, you know, God is not a liar. It's impossible for him to do so. Uh, Numbers twenty three nineteen says this. Titus 1, 2 says this. Hebrews six eighteen shows us that God is not a liar. He's the same yes, yesterday, same forever. He's not man that he should lie or anything like that. So we have to take God at his word and trust him when he says these things. And we also have to look at the Jewish people as God's people, that he still has a plan for them, just as he has a plan for us. He hasn't abandoned them. He still has things that he's going to do for him. Just like you referenced earlier, Paul makes it clear that you know after the tribulation, all of Israel will be saved, and then those prophecies will be fulfilled in the Jewish people.
1: Amen. Amen. Uh, it is it is absolutely um, important for every believer. I'm going to say it again, to be able to trust God at His Word, mm-hmm. and to believe Him, because if you don't then there's, it's, it's not God who's failing. It's you who's failing in your walk. Uh, it's not that you can lose your salvation, but you're going to have a harder time walking out your belief system if you just don't believe God's word and trust God. Because you're going to be questioning things not based on truth, but on a lie. You're, you're going to always put it in the doubt that God isn't fulfilling his role. God fulfills his role. Who doesn't? We don't. Yep. So put your faith in God. Stop doubting him. And you'll see your life transformed and changed radically. Because God doesn't change like the shifting of shadows. James chapter one tells us. God doesn't lie. As scripture says, everything that is perfect comes down from him. Who is the liar? Jesus said it was Satan, the father of all lies. Who does come to kill and steal and destroy? Satan does. Who comes to put doubt in your mind? Satan does. Who's the one that walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour? Satan does. Okay? Who is loving and disciplines those he loves? God does. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Mm -hmm. It's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and produces the salvation of our souls, Uh First Corinthians t- uh, tells us. Actually, Second Corinthians tells us that. So, we can trust in God. We can believe in God. Are you ready to give your life and surrender your will to trusting in God? That's the question. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. So
0: guys, thanks for joining this study. That's, that's all I had. If you joined us late, you can always watch back on the replay. We'll have this video saved after I'll also update and send all my notes that used for this study in telegram. And we'll also have this episode as well as uh, the one we did two weeks ago on the millennium. We'll have that on our podcast as well. So again, you can utilize podcasts. You can listen to it on Spotify, iTunes, Google, you know, whatever you listen to it on, uh, you can uh, listen to it there as well. So any other announcements or any last minute things
1: you want to add? No, it was an awesome day today. Had to work today, worked late, but got to share the gospel today with a, a family. Um, had them in tears. It was awesome at work. Sold them a car and it. and it was yeah. just awesome. And uh, so uh, it was really, they were in tears in a good way. Um, mm. so not, <laughs> not because of the car yes. they were buying. But um, I was able to share them with the gospel. And and it was really awesome to see what God has done in their lives. And and, uh, it was really important. And, you know, God God is working. He's preparing the hearts of minds of people because he's coming back. Mm -hmm. So allow God to soften your heart. Ask God to remove the hardness of your heart. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So thanks, guys, for joining.
0: Fig Tree Watchers, tonight. Um, we will just call the night, and we'll see you on Monday. So Thanks for nice uh, having
1: us, Ayo.